Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? Well, guys, it's that time. It is time for the top 10 movies of 2020. Uh, just so we're clear from the onset, these are Josh and I's picks for a top 10 of the year. They are subjective opinions. If you have a different opinion, that's great. I'm happy for you. But these are our picks. So get off our backs. Uh, yeah. With, yeah. With me, as always, is my <laughs> co-hosted friend, Josh Page. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Stephen, for another lovely introduction, as always. Uh, that's right, folks. It's a bonus episode of uh, Who's Film. And if you don't like it, well, then just turn it off. We're done. We're done placating to the crowd. We are not here to please you. You're here to please us. All right? Yeah. Give us the likes. Give us the shares. Give us I the, can uh, tell that my list will make some friends and will make some enemies, you know? Enemies become friends. <laughs> friends become enemies. Friends become enemies. Enemies become friends. Enemies become friends. Enemies become friends. Oh, Joe, um, it's going to be lovely. Yeah, it's um, going to be great. Uh, so before um, we go well, into start. our lists, let's talk about 2020 in general and the movies that came out. Um, so, uh, tough it, year. <laughs> it's been quite a year, Stephen. I'll, I'll go, I'll just start by saying it was a normal year as always. January rolled around. You mentioned, um, The Assistant, I think it came out in January. Yeah, I saw that. that I think that was the first movie I saw I in think theaters. that was the first movie you saw in theaters and then, uh, you know. Movies seemed quiet but normal, be it them good or bad. And then February rolled around. I think it was February when I saw Birds of Prey in theaters. And uh, you know, life seemed like it was kind of going places, and we saw all these previews for, <laughs> for and, James Bond. And, and then March came around. I saw First Cow in theaters, and then <laughs> a week later, gone. Boom, gone. Shut and, down. Um, yes. Um, for the folks who may or may not know, uh, this show that Stephen and I do came from years long worth of conversations uh, at our old job together. Uh, we would just basically do what we're doing now, but you know. Um, yeah, off you know, air, I said to Josh before we started, you know, <clears throat> this is the podcast we've been doing for years, even though we haven't been doing a podcast for years, because was, Josh and I have been talking about our, you know, top 10 movies of every year for the past like three right. or four years now. All right, and because it's so much easier not to do things than to do things, uh, we've been putting this one off for a while. So since the pandemic happened, it uh, was kind of like, we're like, hey, let's just do this show for real. Let's record it since we're not going to the movies anymore uh, and thus spawned, uh, you know, all of this. Yeah, so, but, yes. Uh, let's talk about the year in general. I got to say, <clears throat> you know, it, it, in the beginning of the year, toward the end, like I want to say up until like September, October, I was kind of disappointed with the movies that had been coming out. Yes. But the deeper I dove into the material the 2020 films the more I realized how good the year was film-wise obviously film-wise I don't mean on a global scale the pandemic is horrible but movie-wise a lot of good content out there surprisingly good amount of content out there yeah, so I've said, um, we've said off air how it's kind of like, or I've, I've said to Stephen off air, I've said that, um, you, you know, a lot of people are starting to say towards the end of the year, there are good movies out there, it's just a lot of people aren't looking for them, or they're not knowing where to look. And, you know, no disrespect, I mean, without theaters, uh, and with 
an overwhelming amount of streaming content. It's like, how are you going to, how do you, A, know what to watch and B, how do you know what's really quality out there? Because there's just so much for good or better or worse, there's so much content. And so like, once you weed through it and you find the new movies, like they're some incredible. I mean, so I've seen movies this year that are some of the more incredible and poignant movies I've seen in, in years. And so. Yeah. This list just, I find is better than my 2018 list, which had theaters open. But the keyword you used was streaming. I can tell you right off the bat, there is not a single movie on my top 10 list that I saw in theaters, which is sad and crazy at the same time. I'm hoping that yeah. never happens ever again. But Yeah, it's really been a weird year. But I mean, honestly, in this day and age of streaming, it's kind of like... You know, you got to be, I mean, I don't know. I'm very thankful for streaming. I rail against it. I collect a lot of, uh, you know, physical media and Blu-rays. But at the end of the day, streaming is the future. It's here, it's now, and it's given us content for everything we have. So, <laughs> yeah. So let's move into our lists, I guess. Uh, just again, so for clarity's sake, I want to mention that Josh and I had not seen everything that came out this year by far i don't know about josh i don't know what was your total at 31 what about you steven <laughs> i was at 134 no <laughs> but uh hold on hold on hold on so steven saw over a hundred movies more than i did yes yes <laughs> that I is wanna... what, uh, that's Listen, what we're getting at here i can sense the t this disdain and judgment right through the mic i can feel all of your sour feelings of judgment listen just I, gonna, i'm not this is a judge-free zone this Steve, is I'm a judge-free zone and i'll be honest being furloughed at the beginning of the year definitely helped bring me to uh you know new heights and honestly this was probably the most amount of movies that i have ever watched in a single year that's because good. outside of these 134 2020 releases i probably watched another like 50 to 60 like rewatch movies like i know i watched the godfather movies again oh absolutely the lord of the ring movies again did you watch the new godfather the part three uh, re -release? uh coda no i didn't yeah. i heard that i again i don't mean to speculate but i heard it didn't really change much i heard it didn't add much but i've heard that people liked it and maybe it just made people go hey maybe godfather 3 wasn't terrible well, but we'll i'll be that. honest i never thought that the godfather 3 was terrible no. Yeah, Sophia's Coppola's performance is not great, but I think that the movie would be considered a a like mob masterpiece if it was not part of the Godfather. Oh, absolutely! But it's know, got so universe. much to live up to. So. Yeah, exactly. Only, You're comparing so much the third movie to the first two movies, which by default it's not going to be as good as the first two because those movies are like some of the best movies that have ever been made ever. It's true. I just know, and I didn't ask you about it, so I know you said Godfather, so I... I yeah, but my um, point was in the beginning that I have not seen everything. There were three movies specifically that I have not seen that I wanted to see, but just didn't have time. Those would be Another Round, News of the World, and Promising Young Woman. I have not seen those three. Maybe they would have been in my top 10 list if I had seen them, but we'll see this year. Um, just to kind of go with what you're saying, and I'll give an intro while I find my lists, um, you can't blame someone for watching movies when 
the government literally tells people to stay home and quarantine and not act with people. So this is arguably, not arguably, this has been the best calendar year uh, in terms of being having the opportunity to, to stay home and watch movies. <laughs> yeah, but what's strange is the people I talk to, a lot of them are like, yeah, we didn't really watch that many movies, uh, 2020 movies this year. And it's like, why? You were so, home. <laughs> I don't want to make this episode to be about a whole other discussion because you know how we, you know, our brains work. But it's like, I've talked to people who are like, yeah, we watched a lot of TV shows. We watched, we rewatched a lot of stuff. And I'm thinking like, there's part of me that's like, how... Is there, how are you not like dying to see what other, and these are people who love movies, like dying to see what new movies are out there. And I realize how different we are from the pack because it's like, yeah, we'll, I don't know, a lot of people were not scoping out the new movies. Yeah, we'll get into our feelings about the future of movies at the end of uh, this podcast. Uh, this is true. But to just go along with what you're saying of um, movies we missed out on that we had seen, I, being that I have seen much less. Uh, films than statement my my I guess my picks based on buzz and all kinds of expectations alone would have been first cow the five bloods and I'm just gonna put all of small acts into one because I meant to watch it and I do want to watch it consecutively but like that's a whole nother discussion about I will say I know that I was kind of hard on first cow in uh the mid-year top five I rewatched it and on second viewing it was better it's not going to make my top 10 list, but it was sure. better than I remembered it being. I just, maybe it was, I don't know. I, I just, the first time I watched it, I feel like I wasn't truly gauging in it. But sure. the second time I kind of was. I've been that way. That's happened to me with actually many movies on my list. I felt that way where like, it's not even that I rewatched them. Instead, I gave them time and I was able to really appreciate them more. And I think that's part of my taste in movies. Yeah, Josh but and I-, I have a term for that. We call it the A24 effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you watch a movie the first time and you're kind of like, uh, I don't know if it's really that good. And then it just like percolates in your mind and, you know, the juices get flowing and you're like, you know what? The themes and the way in which the story's being told is amazing. And I will definitely get to this later in my top 10 because one of the movies on here, at least one has that effect on me. Uh, I think, yeah, many of my movies have that exact effect, but we digress as always. So that's, uh, so where we stand with the, what just for the fun on. of it, why don't we give our worst movie of the year first? Yeah, absolutely. So tell um, me, Josh, what is your worst movie of this year? All right. So I just want to not like, I always give it too much of an intro. I just, I just basically, it's not my lowest like rated, but it's, I, I think it's because it's, it's so loudly what it is. And because it's so fresh in my mind, I'm going to go with Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, that movie, uh. That was pretty rough. <laughs> so here's what my reasoning, just my quick reasoning of it being last is it's because it's like there were other worse movies. that, Like I watched Guns Akimbo with uh, Daniel Radcliffe who wakes up with guns bolted to his hands. And I just, I didn't think it was good. But that's also not a movie I think that was trying to be anything more than- well, That movie was movie. fun. If you could just turn it's, your brain I, off and, you know. Of course. And I the thing is with Wonder Woman coming off the heels of- of 1984 coming off the heels of the first one it's like the first one has such a big impact for people and i don't even love the first one woman i do appreciate it i think it's fine for what it is but <laughs> we i'm not going to dive into it this it was an it was out it was outrageous 1980 wonder woman 1984 yeah it was, it was rough <laughs> that i i agree <laughs> um but yeah between the lack of any 80s culture and the story beats and 
everything with Chris Pine. And I had said to Steven, and I'll just look, close out with this, is that it felt like at a certain point, new directors were stepping in to push the movie in a different direction. <laughs> I just felt like, to me, the the hardest part about that movie was that it started on such like a good note. What happened on Themyscira was pretty entertaining. And then the mall sequence I really loved. And then everything after was just like, it just kept it just kept worse and i just it was so directionless i have no idea where they were going with it <laughs> it just got like, so i feel like no one knew what they were doing i'm and... like surely it can't get worse and then you know kristen Wiig was one of the cats from cats and it was kind of like <laughs> yeah and far be it from me a man to say this but i felt like i didn't understand how a woman directed that movie because at a certain point you're kind of like aren't we past the trope of a woman showing her confidence level by her ability to wear heels? You know, it's kind of yeah. like- I think that what's happening- And that's that Wichita. I think, right. And I think we're still kind of coming out of that 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 age. We're still trying, and you and I have talked about this off, off air and we're, we don't have to go into it, but it's like, we've talked about how so many people are pushing their progressive themes of like, hey, we're different, we're bold and we're whatever. And it's just- it's sometimes because you and I watch the amount of movies we watch, it seems so in our faces where a lot of like common audiences might be like, Oh, good for her, you know? And yeah, I don't know. My worst movie, but yes, it's probably like the easiest answer of the bunch, but it was Capone. Um, oh my god, the Tom Hardy movie, Tom Hardy, Josh Trank came back after his uh, oh, no. fan four stick debacle. <laughs> And my God, my <laughs> God. <laughs> so I was just to, just not to cut you off, but just to, uh, I was watching a video of like the most outrageous moments from 2020 movies. I don't know how I found it on YouTube. And one of them, one of the top moments was Tom Hardy in that movie. I guess a couple ha things happen <sighs> with the character defecating himself. And so it's kind of like, times. right. That wasn't even the problem I had with Tom Hardy's performance. I, the moment he started speaking, I was like, you, this has to be a joke. I don't understand what happened to Tom Hardy where he feels like he cannot speak normally in a movie anymore. Yeah. After The Dark Knight Rises, something like just changed in his brain. I don't know what it is, but he feels the need to put on these stupid fucking voices. And you could tell how bad it was because Linda Cardellini's face the entire time she's next to Capone. She plays Al Capone's wife in the movie. And every time he speaks, I feel like you can see through her acting and she's looking at him going, this guy can't be serious with this voice. <laughs> this guy just can't be serious. Can't be. I mean, and I tend Tom Hardy's such a good actor. So, and he'd that's seem like my, he that's was... the hardest part about it. It's like, this yeah. guy is a great actor and I don't He's understand so what has happened in his brain <laughs> where it's just like, what is happening? Know, and Josh man. Tranks, I, I feel like maybe the point of this movie was it was supposed to be discombobulated because you're following Capone who is like dying of syphilis. His brain is literally going. But at the same time, it's like the incohesive nature of this movie was just too much. And Sounds I heard... I, I don't know. It, it was it was ridiculous to me. Sounds like you're describing J. Edgar a little bit. A great actor, very discombobulated, kind of historical. Piece, I have not but, uh, seen J. Edgar, uh, but 
that's probably about right (laughs) it has the same makeup quality too as j edgar i have seen (laughs) leo's uh makeup for j edgar oh yeah it's fine until a point then he's supposed to be old and then whoever put on his rubber cheeks for you know make it look less rubber (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but as always we digress Anyway, those are our worst movies of the year. We don't want to harp on them too <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah, no, no. This, this is a Let's positive focus on podcast. the good. 2020 was bad enough. So, as always, what we're going to do is Josh will give his 10 through 6. I will give my 10 through 6. Then Josh will give his 5 through 2. I will give my 5 through 2. And then our number 1s. And we'll drum roll out the number 1s. Yeah, so Josh, I know you're all why don't you start excited. us off? I'm what is your off. number 10? All right, so before we dive in, I will mention my honorable mentions. I think let's be fair, we'll keep it five and under. Yep. Um, now, uh, we're going to do, as, as you all know at home, Stephen and I have a habit of, of talking a lot about each specific movie we're going to talk about. So I'm just going to say I have various reasons for putting these movies in my honorable mention. Some may be surprising, some may not. My 15 through 11 honorable <laughs> mentions, <laughs> Uncle Frank, the Amazon original, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, Birds of Prey, Palm Springs, and Another Round, both of which fought many rounds to get in the top 10. And I'm honestly shocked that they didn't make it, but I'm going to stick with it. Okay. (laughs) But please tell the folks at home you're controversial. My honorable mentions, and these are in alphabetical order, so no specific order. American Utopia, Boy State, and these three were like the hardest things to cut. They they were fighting back and forth. But number three, Defy Bloods, She Dies Tomorrow, and the hardest cut of them all was The Sound of Metal. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. That one was like gut-wrenching to cut. But, oh, we're getting somewhere. But here we go. <laughs> so, all then, right, so let's start um, with your number 10. Yeah, so now that we've, you know, gotten this out of the way... Um, so it's 10 through six we're going to do. Yep. My number 10, again, subjective picks. My number 10 is Black Bear. I don't really have, I don't have any notes written down, though, so I'll just do quick riffs. It's like, I, I, what I loved about Black Bear is that it was so unpredictable the entire time. Basically split into two movies. You not, couldn't really gather what was really, where the movie was really going. And I love that it was constantly making me guess. But as you and I talked about, the one glue very strong glue that held together Black Bear for me was Aubrey Plaza. For anyone who's ever judged her in anything as the, the cute goth girl next door, whatever you want to dub her as, um, she proved all expectations wrong. Um, she's had quite the year she's between her, this and Happiest Season. That's I don't right. know if you saw, but there was a huge like internet explosion about her character on in Happiest yeah. Season and how like uh, Kristen Stewart should have chosen her over Mackenzie David. It was like pretty funny. Not being on Twitter, I actually saw that people were, like I heard that people were having that discussion, which made me uh, laugh. But Plaza's so so good, I can't recommend her enough. So I'm just going to lay it there. We might might be talking about that movie later. We (laughs) might be talking about it. My number nine is Mank, David Fincher's Mank. Maybe the hardest placement of them all. This movie moved from a number two to a number 12 and back to a number five and it was all over the place my the reason of my placement is because mank is uh like the a24 effect for me i never really felt this with a movie quite like this because it's david fincher and it's a black and white you know uh wank and i it's everything i love but like because it moved at such a slow pace i was like i don't know if this is really gonna be in my top and like a lot of people refer to it as boring and i gotta think about my own 
my own ignorant point of view. This was a movie I just couldn't stop thinking about. It is so lush and glorious. And like I said, it's a big masturbation to old Hollywood, but I love that. And I, because it was done well, it was done everything about it. It was Amanda Seyfried's best acting. It had this crazy political warfare amidst, you know, Gary Oldman, uh, you know, attempting to to write Citizen, co-write Citizen Kane from being bedridden and a bunch of old Hollywood chumps you know chewing on their cigar and sloshing around drinks and it's beautifully lit and shot it literally is just like it's an incredibly specific love letter to old hollywood and i loved it and it has this drunkenly aggressive ending that i love and everything about it um is perfect except for the fact that gary oldman is supposed to play a 42 year old <laughs> um that was honestly the funniest part of the entire movie well it's funny because it was only at the very end it's not a spoiler it's just they talk about Manx age and like all of a sudden i'm thinking i'm doing the math i'm like hang on gary oldman's supposed to be 43 years old. 43 when during the course of this movie come on and then the movie was over so like i wasn't mad so <laughs> anyway um all right these are gonna be surprising for sure my number eight is the wolf of snow hollow very i've seen that one very a very unexpected movie for me jim cummings wrote and writer and director who did thunder road uh did this movie and it was just it's incredible because it's a murder mystery horror movie around like the the concept of a werewolf but like it's really it's a dark it's a dark comedy and it's really jim cummings is a you know an alcoholic police officer slash father and he's this very troubled man it's funny because the whole town is tracking these murders and everyone's speculating it's a werewolf and he's like the only saint he seems like the only sane person thinking like no there's no such things as werewolves you're all crazy but meanwhile he becomes unhinged as he struggles with his alcoholism so there's a lot of loud metaphors with it <laughs> but by the time it gets to the end it's like you know it's one of those who who really is the wolf of snow hollow you know what i mean and it's just very it was very cheeky and funny and very dark very violent i completely recommend it for horror fans it was a total sleeper i loved it so did they uh use the mel brooks joke werewolf there their wolf not quite that slapstick but i kind of wish they would i think the movie would be bumped up a spot if they had made that joke but <laughs> for uh, for those who heard our mid ranking show in june uh, this was a this was a big one for me. Another sleeper, uh, "Come to Danny" with Elijah Wood. This is my number seven. Wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Probably um. not near anyone's top ten on anyone's respectable list. I refer to this movie as Trailer Park Parasite, and I will stand by that because you think it's one thing, and then it evolves and it turns into something else, and it's constantly pulling the rug from under you. The trailers and the marketing for this movie were brilliant because they just showed a little bit of the quirky, weird story. Elijah Wood goes to visit his father he hasn't seen in years. And then shit just gets really, really strange. And you, what I love about it is that you couldn't possibly predict anything that happens. And then all of a sudden the first twist comes and then the second twist comes and it constantly changes. And I love that because maybe the movie won't have great replay value but the quirky, awkward, like hillbilly nature of these characters in like this beach house, like off the shore. And you know, it's going to get dark and it does. It's really, it hit me in a very um, hard way in terms of just leaving me completely unknowing where it was going to no, go. I feel like movies like that have better replay value. They might. It, absolutely. I only saw it once, but I mean, I, I, as you know, it stood with me from the moment I watched it. And then finally, my number six for now is the A24 
cult film will be the cult film of 2021 that people are trying to see is Saint Maud. Oh, you saw um, it? Yeah. Jealous. Jealous. So, um, so I'll keep it light, but basically in 84 minutes, it's more disturbing and unsettling than almost anything I saw this year. You know, being the the, the parallels between religious obsession and psychological torture are kind of like really hand in hand in a way that I've never really seen in a horror movie or in a movie in general, uh, you know, Maud being a devout religious person, but like, you know, coming from, you know, uh, you know, hospitals and whatever mental facilities, you wonder how much of it is ambiguous and not. And it's just like, it is unsettling. I mean, it's just, it's a movie. It's very bleak. Um, A24 horror movies are always the best. They are something. And really, and I, it's funny because I'm like, how much more can we do pagan or, rel- or religious like horror here? Like it's really, doesn't it get old? And like this movie feels fresh and it's very British. It, um, it, was, it was a completely English film and it feels like it. And so it's very different from something like Hereditary, which feels very American. And so it's very strange. So it's weird, it's dark, it's torturous, it's sexual. It's all the things that people love about movies. <laughs> and it really, I, I don't know, man, it crawled under my skin. So very sexual very sexual I'm, I'm excited to watch that one yes so then i guess i'll start with my number 10 well my number 10 for anyone who's been listening to the podcast probably might have guessed this is kind of a cheat kind of because is it really a movie it's debatable but i chose hamilton directed by thomas kale uh, obviously starring and written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, everyone knows that, uh, you know, other stars, Davi Diggs, Leslie Odom Jr., who's also in One Night in Miami, uh, Renee Els Goldsberry, Philippa So, Christopher Jackson, and Jonathan Groff, who in seven minutes of screen time steals the entire movie. I mean, typical white guy stealing the entire movie, right? I mean, uh, anyway, always. you know, technically, should this be you know, considered a movie debatable, but I love reading. I, I've read the actual book Hamilton twice. I've read, I think like 20 to 30 books on the American revolution. I love that time period in general. Um, Stephen, just for the folks at home, Stephen is also a history nut just as much as he is a, a cinema uh, yeah. nut. <laughs> so to me, this just hit home on a lot of levels. I listen to the music constantly. And it reminded me very much of like Lawrence of Arabia, where you spend an hour and a half watching this very ambitious man trying to attain his goals. And then in the last hour, the second act, you're watching the man who attained everything he wanted derail. He's completely just, uh, un- you know, everything is being stripped away from him because his own vanity is, and his own uh, arrogance, which got him to where it was, led to his own downfall. Now, the reason this and not American Utopia fell on my list is because American Utopia was really great. Don't get me wrong. I loved it and I love the music. I've been listening to that nonstop too. But I feel like the way in which American Utopia was filmed, Spike Lee cut to the audience a lot, which is fine. But at the same time, it made me feel like I was missing out on something. Where Hamilton, it's purely on the stage. So the story is wholly focused on what is 
the action is, not about what I'm missing. You don't see the people reacting, and you're saying, damn, I wish I was them. Yeah, exactly. So number nine, this is going to be... A, this is gonna get me not a lot of fans but Let's i'm gonna go it. with nomad nomadland directed by chloe zhao starring francis mcdermott and a lot of non-actors the reason that this is uh, so low is maybe because it's so fresh in my mind i didn't see it until very late i saw it literally like the last couple days of the new year but this is very much in that A24 effect that Josh and I were talking about. It's like hypnotic, the way it sucks you in. There's very little story. You're watching this woman just trying to find herself in uncertain times. And there's just something about it that like sucks you in. And the political statement it's also making was also very intriguing to me because in 2020 especially it was very easy to get caught in up in the political games of democrat versus republican trump versus biden but at the end of the day nomadland is saying you know the games don't fucking matter people are just hurting in general there's a lot of hurt out there and these nomads it, it's kind of like the line from the lion king timon's line in the lion king you know when the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world. That's his whole movie. Yeah, they felt the crushing blow of the American society and they're turning their back on it saying, you know what, we're just going to drive around and live our best life. Now, I also have to say that I am fascinated by the idea of tiny homes and living like that mainly because of YouTube's algorithm showing me multiple videos last year of tiny homes, but that's up there for me. I also want to know how they got permission to film in an Amazon warehouse. That was shocking to me. Yeah, that was very, uh, maybe they played it off like a documentary and then, I don't know, obviously but with, with Bezos, I don't even know how you- get Yeah, especially since Amazon has its own studio, film studio, but- I think maybe because they had, a, they probably screened it for them and said it's, hey, it's a neutral portrayal of Amazon. It's not like it's an anything, you know what I mean? If anything, it's promoting Amazon because it's just showing her working there. Yeah. And in a way it's kind of promoting it too, because it's not saying it's an evil corporation. It's just saying yeah. like, this is a good job for people who need work. Uh, my number eight, I think yours fell in the same place. It's Mank. Uh, uh, my my mank was my number nine, but it very well okay. could have been number yeah. eight. <laughs> uh, obviously, like you said, directed by David Fincher, written by David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher. Obviously, a passion project for David Fincher. He did this because his father wrote it. Uh, starring Gary Oldman, Amer Amanda Seyfried, Charles Dance, Lily Collins, Tom Pelfrey, who played Joseph Mankiewicz, who I didn't realize. That's you know who that is, right? Joseph who, who Mankiewicz. Are you uh, Tom Pelfrey, who played uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, uh, Mank's brother. Mm -hmm. That's a huge director. That's the director of All About Eve. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't realize that. We'd never have known. I didn't realize that until later on. I would uh, never also have starring known that. Tompins Middleton, which is the most British name I've ever heard. <laughs> she plays poor Sarah. And Tom Burke as Orson Welles, who gives like a, an amazing performance. Now, my reasons are obviously the, the uh, cast was amazing. Everyone's giving an amazing performance. 
uh, realistic or not, it's always fascinating to watch old Hollywood at work. You know, we get that cliche kind of sequence when they're walking in the back lot of the studio, but I buy into that every time. The same. Yeah, this kind I of- I can't be mad about it. This kind of felt like David Fincher's like Bong Joon-ho movie where it has his fingerprint all over it, but it's also something completely new at the same time. You know, it has Fincher's attention to detail, like it, but at the same time, it's something that no other Fincher movie is, which is very witty. Yeah. This movie is funny. And again, I'm going to default to the politics, the politics of this movie and the parallels between the 19... 30s and the 2020s are just staggering between mm -hmm. the radical left and the establishment Republican who is getting big corporate money. Absolutely. And something no one is really talking about, but I feel like I picked up on is I feel like Mank himself, Gary Oldman's character Mank, is kind of a metaphor for old Hollywood in general, just being sucked dry by the new form of Hollywood who's uh orson wells personified yeah. you know? and it's this and it's this dying thing that's being yelled at and being you know uh, it's being used and being just you know like i said suck dry anyway I that i've never heard that yeah that, yeah because you haven't heard it because i came up with it you heard you it do. here she, guys she write it down man number seven is borat subsequent movie film <laughs> directed by jason uh, Wolner starring Sasha Barrett Cohen, who's donning the mustache mention. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It also stars Maria Baklava and Rudy Giuliani himself. Now, is this movie as well shot and executed as Mank or Nomadland? Absolutely not. But this is the hardest I have laughed at a movie all year long. I, would, I actually agree with that. The baby sequence, the synagogue sequence. It, Baron Cohen is just so unafraid to cross the line, kind of like yeah. South Park. He's just mm -hmm. so unafraid to do it. And in a way, this movie felt like the perfect time capsule of 2020. Mm -hmm. It captured Trumpism. It captured COVID. And it had one of the most unforgettable sequences of the year with Rudy Giuliani's hand in his pants. That's you know, true. That was every really... Yeah, it was really, I, I will say, and just, I, I'm, I'm not going to cut you off, but it's just really, yeah. in terms of comedies in such a shit year, it's like comedies always help. And as you and I have talked about on and off air, like comedies have like really struggled these last few years. Yep. This made me laugh in ways that a movie probably hasn't made me laugh out loud since, um, I don't know, since uh, Popstar, the Lonely Island movie. And that was in 2016. Well, you know, that's it's why like, I put it on here. It's like, Josh it's... and I have had this discussion off air. I don't know if we've ever touched on it on air, but like if a movie does what it is supposed to do very well, I have to give it props. And this is you a comedy to. and it made me laugh. Yeah. Really hard. Like this was just so funny to me. And unlike the original Borat, I feel like this had a more interest, a more interesting and more relatable story at the was, center there was of a it. weird amount of weight to it like and by the end of it it's like you kind of find that there's some like the touching themes with the daughter that don't feel like they're hokey like they feel like they're yeah genuine, exactly you know it, it felt more genuine than the first one which <laughs> is why so i'm saying it strange to say it about a borat movie <laughs> so that's my number seven i feel i i don't nah, care run Come with it man me, bro run um, with it and number six which 
I feel like this is the biggest flip ever from Borat to Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, is my number six. Directed wow. by Eliza Hitman, who is a professor at Pratt University. We actually know someone who had her as a professor. Wow. It stars Sidney Flanagan, Talia Ryder, and Theodore Pellerin, all of which were brand new actors and actresses, never which acted always, in anything before. Which, when they're good, is always a pleasure. It's always good to see brand new faces. Yeah. To me, this movie was very refreshing because you're not questioning the morality of getting an abortion. It's a foregone conclusion that Sidney Flanagan's character is going to get one. And every other movie that tackles abortion, it's bogged down of like a morality question. This is saying, I'm getting one, what do I need to do? These are the steps in which you need to go through in order to get an abortion and how difficult a medical procedure truly is to get. And you feel the director's rage permeating through the screen in a visceral way. She's like telling you, this is some fucked up shit. What these girls have to go through just to get a medical procedure is ridiculous. The movie also had like kind of a 70s Scorsese vibe of like a grungy midtown New York City. Beat the streets kind of, yeah, it was very, it was cold. It was yeah. very bleak. Only instead of like Harvey Keitel playing a pimp, you have a young white man who's like probably well off, you know, a young capitalist, young man yeah, yeah, being yeah. the asshole in Midtown. Yeah. And this was probably the best use of the title in a movie I've ever seen. When they finally use the term never, rarely, sometimes, always in the movie, you're like, wow. I, um, I, uh, I'll take this as a, well, you can, if you're not, I mean, I'll let you finish, but it's, it, I think this will be a, a good segue into my number five because that's what I picked. <laughs> yeah, I just have one more thing to say. And I just want to say it was nice to see, I, you know, Josh and I are from New York. So it's just nice to see New York alive in this movie. Yeah, you know, it really there's is. some sleaze in it, obviously, but it's nice right. to see people actually walking around without masks especially in the year of the pandemic it's quite a year and just like i said this is my number five so just so continue what it. you're saying unless you want to create That's a discussion piece <laughs> um i just loved that how honest it was and what you said i mean because as we've done in the past when you and i've talked about movies and final thoughts i don't want to repeat we don't want to repeat what the other person said but it's it's so it's very set in its ways in terms of the opinions. I love that we didn't get preachy. So like they come from very pro-life Pennsylvania where the doctors are showing them the sound, showing her, um, uh, August, the, 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 the ultrasound. And she's like, this is the most magical sound you'll ever hear when you hear the heartbeat and you see the tears, you know, you see her face and it, there doesn't need to be any dialogue mm -hmm. because it's kind of anything it needs to say in that moment. Um, I love that the juxtaposition of August trying to get rid of her, her, this baby is her cousin Skylar being constantly sexually harassed by other men who otherwise would want to impregnate her, you know, whatever, <laughs> however you want to word it. But I just love that like contrast because it becomes so much more about getting an abortion is bad or like you need to be more protective with sex. It's like, no, like there are, there's a very quiet, um, it's just troubled nature of young people, uh, you know, of, of guys taking advantage of girls. And like, there's so much more yeah, commentary. And sorry to like cut no, you I, off. No, I want to make this discussion um, piece. <laughs> but it's, it's not questioning the morality because it's not a young woman just blazingly getting an abortion. There is, and I don't mean to spoil it, but this is given away within the first like five minutes of the movie. 
it's very heavily implied that she was raped by her stepfather. Sure. So it's that's why she needs it. It's not even the, a matter right. of like she wants to necessarily. It's like she's 16 or 17 years old, yep. still yep. in high school, yep. and was molested by her stepfather. And and that's the thing. This movie is so much more to me. What, what made it special and ultimately what made it grow on me because as I told you the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. It was the pure A24 effect because <laughs> what it was for me is that it was so much more about uh, sexual independence, especially in terms of speaking up because this is probably... <laughs> the most significant and relevant movie about abortion maybe ever made. Like, at least that I've seen, like, I don't know. I'm sure there's other more, you know, inspiring movies out there, but like, it hit me in a way where I'm like, this is a movie that people need to see. It's arguably the most important movie on my list. So it's not my number one because it's not, I felt stronger opinions towards other movies, but it's so, it's so, it's so relevant. It's so crucial. And it's so timely. No, that's spot on. It probably is the most important movie on my list as well. Yeah. yeah. So I feel, I don't know if I'm going to give a recommendation in terms of like, what's like people should watch in terms of like importance for like, especially young people out there. It's, it's, it's this one. My number four was sound of metal. Yeah. Um, I know you had a hard cut. That was the hard. hardest thing I had to cut. So I'll just say flat out uh, Riz Ahmed probably won't get an Oscar nom, but like he's, he's honestly like i can't put into words how good he is he carries the movie by himself um olivia cook's great she's very supportive those and eyebrows I, and <laughs> those eyebrows though yes from bleached eyebrows to regular eyebrows we see she makes a big transformation i honestly but, didn't know it was olivia cook until she got her eyebrows back and i was like holy shit that's great <laughs> i'm picturing you being like Who, where the fuck do i know this girl from and then like an hour into the movie you're like oh shit i recognize her. oh yeah totally yeah olivia i was cook. like what oh what up, <laughs> but, but what i love loved most about this movie is its transition from being what you thought was this blaring heavy metal movie about musicians and maybe trying to get their lives back and be on the road and it transformed into a commentary about the deaf community and I loved that again like never rarely sometimes always it could have been preachy in the wrong hands but like it was so poignant in terms of saying like no like the deaf people are you know, see being deaf as a gift and not as a, a curse. And it's kind of like the whole movie is Riz, who um, remember uh, Ruben is the char- is the character's name. So Ruben is struggling because he's constantly railing against being deaf as because he loses his hearing from drumming. That's the plot of people you know haven't seen it, whatever. Yeah. But basically, it's you know him railing against this idea that this is his life now that he's deaf and like so he has an old mentor and he's in a classroom learn sign language and it's an incredibly um informative and educational movie about the deaf community but what i love is that it doesn't again it doesn't become preachy it doesn't become a message it's constantly about ruben rebelling and with riz ahmed's performance and the way he lashes out against this community and against his own you know, this own event that's happened in his life, you you just see the stubbornness of mankind. And like, I don't know, it's a little dramatic, but like it, the, the movie really stuck with me from- Yeah, no, that's a great one. <laughs> and I'll just want to add that yeah, yeah, yeah. someone that no one is really talking about, but I think deserves not just a nomination, but the award for mm-hmm. best supporting actor is Paul Ratchie. Oh my God. There's a moment in this movie when he, you see him holding back tears and yep. you're just like, this guy, where's this guy been? Where, where is I, this guy been? Where, have, I, have we seen that guy in anything else? 
I'm sure we have. He's usually like a smaller background player, but from what I read, his father and I think brother are deaf. He so he knows sign language. He can actually Dude. hear, but he's he must be channeling that rage that his parent must feel because what? his performance was so just astounding what was so brilliant about this movie and it, it's with that with that guy the scene that you're talking about with the tears is that so much of this movie is caked in an environment where you've got these heavy metal drug addicts with tattoos who are screaming you know their loud personalities and yet now like we're seeing them in a, such a tightened closed community that is all about the value of silence and so there are scenes where he's talking to Ruben and he's like no speak in sign language and he's signing to him and you can see like this true emotion and like it's those moments that like make the hairs on my arms stand up like the moments that like you and I've talked about like the moments that make you either make you feel like you're going to cry or make you actually feel like a human being and make you feel like a person that make it special and that's how this movie made me feel in those kind of moments like, this is genuine like this is yeah a genuinely emotional movie. And so I can't not give it a top spot. <laughs> um, good one, good one. I want to just say, even though I haven't said it yet, and it's kind of, I think how we'll, you and I both feel about a lot of things is that my, my top five are kind of all interchangeable. It's kind of really like these next three, especially these next, especially these next three are, they, any one of them could have been number one. So as always, just bear with us, folks. We're just doing our thing here. Bear down um, from here. It's, it's a bear dance. I just want to say that this will probably spark some controversy between the two of us, which I'm really excited about because I know you and I are going to have different opinions. But oh, my boy. number three is going to be, I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, Charlie Kaufman's I'm thinking of ending things. Number yep. three. <laughs> I know you have things to say. Just, well, unless you want well, no, no, no. No, no, no. I... So it's definitely, so, we'll definitely, I'll get to it. You're going to talk about it. So I'm going to keep it quick. Um, Charlie Kaufman kind of like outdoes himself because, and I'm not going to dive into like the plot really. It's just like, a, because they're really, the plot is so thin. It's this couple going to visit, you know, this, uh, the boyfriend's parents home in the dead of winter. And these right from the get go from the third drive over to the house and it's snowing out and you hear so much of this movie it's just internal monologue it is um i'm sorry you'll have to forgive me what's her name jesse buckley jesse buckley thank you so jesse buckley's monologue is so internal like so much of this movie is just dialogue through what's in her head and then once you find out how psychologically of a deep dive this is into her boyfriend's head um Jake played Jesse by Plemons. Jesse Plemons. Thank you. And anyway, I won't dive into it, but basically the movie is so much what you don't think it is. And then like, I was really into it because I'm like, Oh, Charlie Kaufman's going to do like a horror thriller kind of thing. And the movie surely gets psychologically thrilling, if you will. But by the time you reach the climax and it's a whole movie is just baked in winter and it feels very, I don't know, with, 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 it's a lot of a commentary on time and age and death and life and relationships. And they do it in such a way that Charlie Kaufman does best in his quirky dialogue. And he does it in a way that's funny, but this is also probably one of his bleakest movies. Mm. It is probably his biggest commentary movie in terms of like getting old and like, mind you, it's based off of a book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So the book he, is also named I'm Thinking of Ending Things. So this isn't entirely Kaufman's coming from Kaufman's brain, but what he did is he took a story that he is basically saying, Hey, here's what here's a, a, a very strange and quirky and offbeat look at life. And it's from this perspective where time is irrelevant and age is irrelevant, but like this is about a specific point of view of life. 
and even and you can't trust anything going on you can't trust the editing you can't trust the character because so much of it is is pulling the rug from under you so i know i just said i wasn't going to talk a lot about it no we'll definitely talk more about it later i promise we will talk more about it later i didn't mean to rant just then but no 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 um, no. another controversial pick maybe for you i don't know where it stands maybe i'm wrong it's in the same placement is um i'm gonna go with uh minari as my number two I did not mention that in my honorable mentions because I knew it would be on your top 10 list. But oh, it, it so is nice an honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Um, all right. So basically, Minari. So, so Stephen and I uh, said off air that, you know, like the white whales were Minari and Nomad Land in terms of these movies that no one could see. It was kind of like everyone's been raving about them. So it may be a little obvious what these, what the top two are, but like, I don't know, Minari is this, Minari and my number one pick go hand in hand in terms of just being depictions of life, spoiler alert. So it's kind of just, anyway, but it's basically like when you see this Korean family moving to America, um, so much of this movie is like really about nothing. It's just about them living and adapting to American life. But for me, that's the whole point. Like Steven Yoon fighting with his wife and they got their two kids and they're living in like, um, it's not a trailer home, but it's like a, um, it's like it's this not, kind of not a trailer home. It's not like it doesn't move really, even though the house has wheels, as they say. But then they invite over their traditional Korean grandmother, and you just see these kids, and they're going to church. And like, there was a point where I'm like, what is this movie even about? And then they kind of get to the ending, and then it's like everything about the metaphors of the farming and literally planting the roots for this family. Like, yeah, it it is a loud metaphor movie, especially in the final act, because things happen where events will 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 represent the the relationship between the husband and wife and like you're looking at it and you're like oh this is everything between the family versus the farm and like what is it really about and this whole idea of korean independence thriving in america and having such a different especially like they're coming from california where they they're so used to um as they refer to uh looking at chicken butts all day they're chicken sexing <laughs> and they're separating chickens the countless amount of Countless amount of chicken slaughter. <laughs> the countless amount of chickens in this movie are overwhelming. So it really was the true A24 effect, and this was an A24 film. It was literally I, a chicken holocaust in this movie at some point. <laughs> it's so much, it has so much to say about life, and Steven gives such an incredible performance. Yeah, um, absolutely. I just, he, holds, he holds the whole movie, and it's quiet, and I can see why a lot of people will watch it and be like, it's not that great, or maybe it's not, like, whatever... And it's just like, and I get it because truly not a lot happened. People will inevitably call it boring or they won't find their own meaning and that's fine. But like, it really hit me in a way where I was like, this is a, again, this is a very important movie. So, Like I said, this was definitely an honorable mention. The only reason I didn't talk about it was because I knew for a fact it was going to be on your top 10. That's fine. I'm very, I can be very predictable. It's fine. So I... <laughs> respect yeah i saw your letterbox uh, review i was like this is gonna be on his top 10 i know it so there was no need to mention it yeah thank you so but like you i don't think it was boring at all it was beautiful. no of course of course of course but uh my number five you mentioned it before i'm going with black bear um directed by lawrence michael levine starring christopher abbott sarah gaddon and Aubrey Plaza. Where's this Aubrey Plaza been? I shouldn't have been shocked because I watched Legion and her performance in that was amazing. But this is like next level stuff. I am like, I can say with 
a hundred percent certainty that I think this this was like the best performance I've seen all year. It was and next level. It was next level, and I think <laughs> that is why it is so high up on my list because this movie was just the biggest surprise to me of the entire year. It's a small independent movie, but it encapsulates like comedy, drama. There's a psychological thriller aspect. It just like has a little bit of everything. It was kind of like, the way I've been describing it is it's like the perfect mix between Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Mulholland Drive. You never could see where this thing is going at any moment. It should and... have been higher on my list. What? It should have been higher on my list. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not here to. No, no, this is what happens. No, list, you're not but... dictating. I'm looking at my list and I anyway, keep going. <laughs> I'm sticking just, my guns. Yeah, and it also had what Mank had in the commentary on filmmaking in general. Oh, 100%. Which I also love. I always love watching movies about making movies. So to me, it just like had, to, it, it, as soon as I, just, uh, I, I assume no one from work is listening, but I watched this thing at work and literally for the hour and a half it was on, any email that came in was like secondary. My, I, I was just sucked into this movie. I was like, <laughs> this is my priority right now. And I watched it twice because I was like, this is so good. In fact, all of my top five, I watched twice just to make sure. Respect, I got to make sure. Yeah, my number four is Hole. See, Josh's face dropped because he thought I was saying Hole, but I was really saying Soul. Sorry, it's always no, it's, jokes. No, it's a great, that's a great, that's a great joke, man. That's. No, it's good. I was, I, saying like... whole, I was saying soul. Um, <laughs> the voice hole. Directed yeah, 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 yeah. by Pete Doctor, who everyone knows from his Inside Out fame. Written by Kemp Power, who also wrote One Night in Miami, which was another good movie last year or this coming year, however you see it. It obviously stars Jamie Foxx, Tina Fey, Graham Norton, who I was shocked by his performance. It was pretty good. Angela Bassett, Davi Diggs, you know, just a whole great cast. Uh, um, the film just like matched the year in a way. You know, I just, yeah, yeah. no, I, I want to say that I, this would have been, because as, as you and I have talked about in our Disney show, which, hey, folks, we just I covered Disney at some point. It's, uh, that I might, me and animated, I, I don't give animated movies the credit they deserve or the benefit of the doubt. But in terms of my bucket list, this is like you saying with me with Minari. It's I wanted to mention Soul as a as one that I wanted to see. Uh, it's just no disrespect, but I I did. Yeah, I know I had that you are not an animation person, but I also know that you love Inside Out, and this I, is like yeah. I know people are saying it's not as good as Inside Out, and I think that it is like maybe like half like literally half a point down from Inside Out. I do love animated films. I just don't give them the respect they deserve. <laughs> yeah. I, but I have even heard that Soul is, people are, I've heard people say that Soul's even better than Inside Out. I've heard people say it's a well, top it tier. It does Pixar. what Inside Out did perfectly, which is it, Pixar has this like inane ability to take these high concepts like life and death or emotions and uh -huh. whittle them down to a minimalistic and engaging animation style. And I, I was just in awe of what they did for, again, this is not a spoiler because you know, if you've seen the trailer, you know, what they did to create the great beyond and the great before. It's just like, 
amazing. And this movie, you cannot pin like Black Bear either. It takes directions that you didn't anticipate, but it worked because um, it, there was just so much underlying emotional impact with the twists that came with it. The animation is staggering. Like the level of detail in this thing, I, I like you could see fucking dust clumps in so some the, of the sequences. See, it's that's what uh, not, to, not again not to cut you off. That's what I love about animated movies is the the attention to detail. Yeah. And this one seemed like they had really. Pixar is like uh, always tried to up their game visually. They always seem like each movie is kind of trying to outdo the last to see how how much detail they can capture. Yeah, and I'm telling you, like the, the level of detail in the animation is just staggering. It's like, I couldn't believe, like Joe's character, you can literally count the individual mustache hairs this guy That's has. awesome. It's I love crazy. That. Did the, it make you cry? <laughs> it didn't make me cry, but it made me have a just profound response. And it made me look at my life and go, wow. Yeah, it's like, good. Cause... I, I don't want to give away things, so I'm not going to, but it no, is- No, of course. It but is very, it, it's a very inspiring movie. If to, if we're just going to dig personally for a second, I just know that that's one of your rules. If it makes you cry, it'll, yeah. you know, or brings you to tears, it'll bring you so. But I'm not, I'm not discounting that the movie's obviously going to be moving because I didn't cry, but I man teared up. That's um, just as good. <laughs> and like, and like never rarely, sometimes always, it was just really nice to see New York alive again. And, love lively New York. <laughs> and it was just great to like see New York in its like full form because you're not, e it's not even bogged down by the whole abortion thing. This is like, I'm going to get New York pizza. And you're like, oh, you know what? I can go for New York pizza right now. You're talking about soul. Yeah, I'm talking about soul. So there's no abortion in soul. Yeah, there's know, no so. abortion in soul. None <laughs> that I know of. I'm telling you, this movie is just very deep and profound and you anyone who watches it will take something away from it the only criticism people have been throwing at it is it's like is this a kid's movie and my answer is yes if you put this shit on in front of them they're gonna watch it well you know what though just to just just to just to discredit not to sorry not the right word hold on sorry just to counteract that um i think that pixar itself has kind of uh, dis uh disconnected or sorry, uh, Pixar itself has deconstructed that notion that these movies are for kids because like, yes, you could put a kid in front of any Pixar movie, but I almost every single Pixar movie, save for maybe some of the Cars movies are ones that adults will take away just as much, they if not more so. The thing about Pixar and specifically like this movie and Inside Out and like any of their more cerebral movies do is they tell stories that can only be told in animated form but they are just as like interesting and profound as a live action movie they are just a they're adult movies just told through a medium of animation because that is the only way that you could tell some of these stories anyway that's i mean it's it's uh, that's what makes them special you know what i mean and like again that's why i'm not discrediting the movie i didn't have in my honorable mention because like i said i don't gravitate towards animated movies but as i get older i realize i should because animated movies are arguably better than they've ever been mm. um so i, I definitely will and then other times you get trolls too um <laughs> or trolls world tour you mean whatever the fuck is or angry Bir or angry birds the movie too oof or anyway, uh, <laughs> let's focus I, on the good i here. like the idea of it's just naming <laughs> shitty animated animated movies 
Uh, let's focus on the good stuff here. My number three, like you, is I'm thinking of ending things. Wow. So literally the exact same placement, written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, obviously starring Jesse Buckley, Jesse Plemons, Tony Collette, David Thewlis. It's a smaller cast. What I love about it is Charlie Kaufman's writing, and he he just he writes the most enigmatic stories that I have ever seen. Yes, this seems like a simple movie in concept, but the minutia of detail is just staggering. The clothing, the wallpaper, the way in which characters age and de-age and change intermittently without you even like, sometimes you notice, sometimes you don't even notice. Um, you know, the the detail of names. You don't know Jessica Buckley's character's name. You know, is it Lucy? Is it... Uh, Something, you know, there were a bunch of different names thrown out there. This is a movie that will be debated for years to come. Anyone who watches it could literally walk away with a different interpretation of it entirely. And I, I love, love movies like that. Well, it's great because it's it doesn't, it's almost like the Inception ending where it's like, it's kind of like, well, what was it really about? And like you were talking about the attention to detail. I'm not, I don't mean to take away, but it's like, a, there are people who have watched like Twin Peaks and like they watch it so many times because they want to dissect every frame because that's like how David Lynch designed the show in a way. Yeah. And this is kind of like the same kind of thing because it seems to be one thing and then you're like, hang on, this is what it was really about. And then you go back, you're like, what even was this scene about or this dialogue or this shot here? And there are certain sequences like they when they draw attention to it, like when they look at the picture frames and the person in the picture frame will slightly change. Or, you know, like when they go into a room and even the way that the, the dress like the set design is like it'll it'll shift between takes yeah. like it well, almost seems in, like uh, continuity I, errors that's what i'm saying even in like the opening car ride which is when I, I the moment i saw the opening car ride like the opening 22 minutes of this movie i knew it was like gonna be in my top 10 but the car ride the clothing of the characters changes specifically jesse buckley's character and it doesn't lay it on thick you have to notice it because one minute you cut and she's wearing pink the next time she's wearing orange and then it, it just changes so beautifully and i've seen this movie twice it, i don't know just everything about it is so detail oriented and beautiful the way charlie kaufman throws theories and discussion points out there that people have had over and over again but brings a new spin to them is staggering to me well i mean and just to uh, give you a last thought about what I have about what you're saying is that in terms of it of, of things constantly changing I think what hits me most about it is in terms of recounting memory a lot of this movie is about memories and so it's like it's funny because like if you look at any psychological evaluation of a person's memory people will remember different things about the same event it's the Rashomon theory because they it's based on either personal uh, perspective or a certain emotion that they felt in that in that time and so certain events will be more in, in uh, you know in, in flared and, and some won't be because it's kind of like people are remembering it differently so when people watch this movie it's kind of brilliant because people may take away something from one that's scene that's what i'm saying you right know, everyone who walks away from this movie will have a completely different interpretation of what it's happened. cool we've never and, there's not a movie in 2020 that i've ever seen that does that that has that kind of effect and what a perfect ending. Just the last like 20 minutes of this movie, amazing. So good. Anyway, number two, I this is kind of a cheat, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to go with the entire Small Axe anthology. That's fair. Uh, all of them were directed by Steve McQueen. 
and starring a lot of people, you know. John Boyega's in it, Letitia Wright is in it, a bunch of other people are in it. Real quick, off air, Stephen and I had many conversations about whether or not Small Axe was a film or whether the films within the film were films themselves. Almost like a miniseries, I think it's safe to say that Small Axe as a whole can be declared a film. But the thing is, there are the pieces in there, the episodes, if you will, that were, you know, whatever, an hour long and some were almost two and a half hours long. So it's kind of like, where does it really fall? And I think it's fair to just say that it's all a movie, even if you were to say that the movies within the movies are films themselves. Each of them is a meticulously crafted and beautiful and very poignant movie because they all tackle something very important. Like I said, it's five movies in one on to be honest, the first two movies, Mangrove and Lover's Rock, are by far the best of the five. I heard those were the better. The, Mangro- those were the better ones. Mangrove was so good that it kicked Trial of the Chicago 7 off of my even like honorable mentions list because Mangrove did what Trial was trying to do so much better, in my opinion. And Lover's Rock was like such a fresh take on like the Cinderella story. But... What was so interesting to me was for years, the only films that I find tackled racism were American films. So it's fascinating to see a British director tackle the racism that lives within the British system. Well, yeah, um, because, you know, I mean, he's... I mean, him, Stephen McQueen being being black, but also being British, he has a very unique, you know, perspective. Well, that's what it is. This is all a brand. This is a unique perspective that you don't often get an insight into, which is what I loved about every single one of them. And I'll just finish my thought by saying that what I loved most about each of these films was that McQueen was not afraid to let moments just live out in lover's rock there's a party sequence when everyone just stops and sings and it is beautiful in the last film education there's a moment where uh, someone is singing house of the rising sun and he sings the entire song like acoustic and it's just so I, I don't know. It's just so nice to watch moments just live. There's no sometimes need. you need that you need moments like that in movies. Yeah, there's no like he didn't feel the need to just like cut away and just like I need to cut here, I need to cut here. Let's just live for a moment. Like the, that's the, what life is. I think that's the problem that I that I have with a lot of like blockbusters and mainstream movies. It's like even the ones I enjoy in like the Marvel movies or whatever, is they're so quick to get to the point that it's very rare that you see see movies like that that'll endeavor in the small moments where a lot of indie films and most of the movies on our lists, like they have plenty of moments like that, where like maybe there's not much plot, but you're watching a character just be. Yeah. And I think that's that's... why Nomadland was up there for me, Uh, or I guess down at number nine, but it was still up there. Cause. Oh yeah. yeah. uh, So I, and I just wanted to add one more thing. I'm not going to relitigate the rise of Skywalker here but it was just nice to see John Boyega actually being able to give a performance that's worthy of his talent. Yeah, because he's clearly got talent, you know. He is clearly a very talented actor, and this movie utilized it, utilized him perfectly. 
So those are my six through two. Why don't we go over our 10 through twos and then you can give your number one. All right. So just to reiterate to the folks at home, thank you for your patience. If you've been listening this whole time, (laughs) (laughs) this is literally what David and I live for. So it's kind of a, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, keep your judgment at the door, assholes. All right. So, um, <laughs> no, all right. So the number, so 10 through two uh, for me was Black Bear at number 10. Number nine was Mank. Number eight was the Wolf of Snow Hollow. Seven was Come to Daddy. Six, St. Maud. Five, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. I like this list. Four, Sound of Metal. Three, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Two, Minari. And as I had said, two and one, the, the first few are interchangeable, but two and one really could have been hand in hand. No surprise here. My number one is going to be Nomadland, uh, as Stephen had mentioned earlier. Uh, I don't need to go too much into it since he had said uh, kind of what needs to be said. It's a, it's not really about anything in terms of this woman isolating herself. You had said something earlier, and I'm just paraphrasing, but it's like, it's kind of the perfect movie for 2020. In a year with COVID, political warfare, protests and you know whatever just there's there's so much chaos that it's easy to want to fantasize at least for myself to fantasize about escaping even if it's just momentarily and kind of like living in isolation so I think this is I evaluate as I get older and not to make it about me make it about the film but it's like the idea of taking personal vacations or taking time to yourself and taking time to be alone and and finding the value in being who you are there's not a lot of preachy you know commentary about you know being who you are but so much of this movie is Frances McDormand in such an incredibly dialed back performance and it's her just silently railing against the world being like no come join come join us like she has friends and people in her life who are like oh you can stay with us and you can live with us and it's she's constantly digging her heels in and saying like, no, it's, I'm not, I'm just going to be me. And so much of this is just her in the, like, the wilderness uh, with these other people in these rolling tiny homes. And like a lot of the actors, most of the actors in this movie are not real. Actors. Like they're, they're not real actors. They're just people with names based off of who they are. And so like, it's very, it's almost documentary style. Um, I, I don't like animated films. I don't gravitate towards documentaries as much. I love them, but like this is, I get more excited about just whatever fictional storytelling or whatever. But this movie bleeds almost into documentary territory because it feels so real. The characters, you know, uh, you know, this guy named Bob with a beard, and he just sits and tells stories, and like you believe it's a real person. Like there's something so special about these characters sitting around a campfire and playing songs about their their minivans, and it's like. And yet it's like, what's really going on? It's these people struggling to survive. And it's this about this low welfare kind of like experience of people finding their own happiness and learning to live and finding the value in life. And like, it's just so like, if never rarely, sometimes always is the most important movie I've seen, then No Man Land is the most um, sobering in terms of like looking ahead because like this took 2020 like i know people joke about it but like it was a hard year for a lot of people so it's ironic that chloe Zhao put out this movie probably with no intentions of coming against covid and what this year was bringing but like in a way saying like no this is what the american people represent to a degree um and i think in in a, in a sense it's going to be one of the most culturally relevant movies of this century because of its focus on heartbroken isolation i don't think there's enough that can be said about it there's nothing i can certainly say that people haven't said already or that steven has said it's kind of that you've said you know it's like 
I, there's not enough to be said. And yet I understand why like people will want more from a movie like this. Cause there's really just, it's almost, it's an hour and 45 minutes of just Francis McDormand kind of wandering. And I get why that will turn people off. But yeah. for me, that was the whole point. <laughs> I just want to add one thing. It was, of course. It was amazing to watch this movie and it does something so amazing where for the first time you watch this movie, it makes you feel like a mansion is an enclosed environment. Mm -hmm. Like you feel just how suffocating a house can be. Oh, 100%, especially and, the backyard scene when they're talking. Yeah. And it's just staggering how they how that happened. You know, you don't usually think of a mansion as a suffocating environment, but this made it feel like, yeah, like, I don't know. The great outdoors is my house now. Well, it's weird because you the spend American enough time. American uh, Southwest is my home an, now. You, exactly. And you spend enough time watching Francis McDormand just wandering around and shitting in buckets and stuff that by <laughs> yeah. the time Who you see her. Who knew that I needed to see Francis McDormand <laughs> shitting in a bucket? But Who I guess I did. I guess that that's what this year called for. But by the time she gets to the scene with the backyard of the people like having drinks and having a cookout, it seems like for us, like a standard American, like, you know, weekend kind of day. And then they start talking about retail and like real estate and like houses and like not retail, they start talking about real estate, real estate. and houses. And um, all of a sudden you realize like, you don't, you don't want, you know, there, there's something turned off about it. You don't want to be like these people, you know, you want to be shitting in buckets. And so <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There's just, it, it hits in that way. They did, they did an incredible job. Yeah. That's a good one. So just to recap my list, we got number 10, Hamilton, number nine, Nomadland, number eight, Mank, Number seven, Borat, subsequent movie film. Number six, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Number five, Black Bear. Number four, Soul. Number three, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Number two, Small Axe. And number one, Palm Springs. Wow. What in the actual fuck? Wow. This is not my typical kind of pick. You know, last year I went with Parasite the year before that you know i usually go with like the big grand movie but the intimacy of this movie grabbed me directed by max uh barbacow uh starring andy samberg Kristen malati and jk simmons i watched this movie i want to say four times this year and every single time it just hits me in a new way does it get better as it goes along yeah because I watched it once, and like I said, it was hard for me to cut. It was in my number 10 the other day, but like, I just wow. think that this movie is, I know we said this about Nomadland, but I truly mean it for this. This is like the encapsulation of 2020. Like, That's this fair. is 2020 in a nutshell. That's fair. Characters literally reliving the exact same day, like in quarantine, over and over and over again. But the point of this movie, just like the point of last year, was about finding yourself. It's about self-discovery, what you really want out of life. You can relive the same day over and over again and have a cavalier attitude like, like Andy Samberg's character. Or you can live a fun life for a little bit and take the bull by its horns like Christine Milotti's character. And I, I don't know, it just hit me very hard every single time I watched it. 
the movie is hilarious in of itself. And what also strikes me is something that not many people are paying attention to is the fact that every single character in this movie from second to third tier characters have an arc and are fleshed out. Literally every single character, maybe not an arc necessarily, but every single character has their own distinct personality. And it's not just like some ancillary, like throwaway thing. Like even the guy who's wearing the over the top, like denim jacket with the star on it Mm -hmm. and his fucking Andy Samberg's girlfriend. Like he's a drug dealer too, but there's more to him than just that. He's still a person. Just to add on to what you're saying, just real quick, is that yeah. I like that the movie starts as like a, you think it's going to be a Groundhog's Day kind of thing. And that's, it was kind of annoying in the beginning because I'm like, okay, you kind of think you, you know, as a, a ignorant moviegoer, you think you know where it's going to go. And I love that the movie was not about this, the, it wasn't about them being stuck. It was about what they learned, you know, the lessons you learned along the way. But what you're saying about the other characters is what was interesting is that they, they focus on the wedding where everyone's putting on smiles for other people. And so what happens is, is there's these two people who become cynical because they know exactly how the wedding goes. And what happens is, is as they explore and poke around with the other characters, you learn the true nature of some of those wedding guests. So yeah. like you're saying, like the people fucking around or with the drugs, this is like, like they've always been that way but we're learning it at different points in the movie because the characters are like kind of diving into this whole sea of yeah of toxic and like people. 2020 you know everyone in this movie has to pretend everything is just going okay even though you're reliving the same fucking day the over and over and over again and it was just nice to see that like you can pull yourself out of a rut no matter how deep the rut is, like Andy Samberg's character, there's no real, SD, you know, they don't really specify how long he's been there because like he said, time is muddled to him. But people have like done calculations online and it's projected he was in that time loop for about like anywhere between like 10 to 40 years, you know, mm-hmm. which that's fucking crazy. Well, it's a clever concept um, for sure. And like I said, I liked that it wasn't about the actual time loop itself. It was yeah. actually, it, for me, I actually feel like it was more of a commentary <sighs> on, on relationships because by the time the two of them, because as you know, you know, Steve and I have said off air, like I just did, detest relationships in movies. I just don't think they're handled very well. They're very shallow and you know projected to audiences in a certain way. But what I love about what Palm Springs does with its relationships is it's these two people who have, a new point of view of the world because they are reliving it, but because they're stuck together, it's almost like a commentary on marriage or relationships in terms of like, well, we're both struggling in this kind of day in day out process. How do we get through it together? And I think it's very weird because it hits in that romantic, in that romance kind of way that like a lot of movies struggle to hit. Yeah. Well, that's what was so surprising to me too. You know, I'm not usually like a rom-com kind of person, but it works. I actually bought the relationship this time because it's not easily won you know they start out as just trying to be friends and then the night after they bang they wake up in separate rooms because that's part of the deal of reliving the same day over and over again you have to wake up where you woke up that day and just the repercussions of waking up where Christine Milati's character does and realizing there's still real shit to be handled here. 
as much as it would be nice to fuck around with Andy Samberg's character forever, that's not life. Mm-hmm. And I respect that wholeheartedly. It's ambitious. And it was, it was also important this year, or last year, I mean, because like I was saying before, it was just so easy to fall into a rut of living the exact same day of every day over and over again when you're stuck in quarantine. I think that that movie, 20, like when we look back on 2020, that Palm Springs is going to be the movie that everyone's like, that's what it was like. <laughs> that's a great reasoning for picking it for number one, because I love that movie, but I also like, I fought for it to be in the top 10, but I didn't look at it. Obviously it represented 20 to me, but I didn't think of it as so representative of the shit show that was 2020, you know? Yeah. I, I just thought it was so charming and beautiful and that's my pick oh man you got feelings man i do sometimes they uh (laughs) make their way to the top (laughs) wow holy smokes we did it we did it we made it through our top 10 so now let's go give our pick for what we are most excited about in 2021 the movie that we are most excited about well, I have one of two answers, so I actually want you to go first so I can say what the other one is. Okay, I whittled it down. I, I only have one answer. Okay. And, you know, there was one obvious answer that I didn't go with because I figured you would go with it. And but, that's how I'm feeling the same way, so. Yeah, so my most anticipated one is there's no technical title for it right now. It's just dubbed Soggy Bottom. It is Paul Thomas Anderson's next film starring... Bradley Cooper and I'm just Paul Thomas Anderson never lets me down ever ETA's got one of those names he just all you gotta see is a film by Paul Thomas Anderson I'm like okay just give me my money just take my money just take 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 my money so (laughs) I have I I have no idea what it's about I just know that Paul Thomas Anderson is directing it and Bradley Cooper is starring in it so I mean he's the Babe Ruth He's the Babe Ruth of our of our of our century of this of our generation of century. He just hits yeah. home runs. That's awesome. All right, so I'll give. All right, so I'll I'll give a quick. All right, so my I'll just give a quick runner up. I was gonna say French Dispatch because it's the new Wes Anderson movie for the same reason you're saying Paul Thomas Anderson. Also, there's an incredible trailer for it, but that's besides the point. Uh, that was gonna be my back. So sure, you were gonna say what obviously you knew I was gonna say is gonna be Denny Villeneuve's Dune, yeah. uh, of course. Um, for the people on and off air, you'll all, you'll learn our tropes and our, our personalities very quickly if you haven't already. Um, with me and horror and certain things and big grandiose and Denny Villeneuve, like Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, he puts out things and I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna go see it regardless. But that movie just I don't know. The trailer was incredible, and I was hyping it up long before the trailer. Um, I mean, there's no other words. It's the one I'm looking forward to more than anything else. Um, there, I'm actually looking very forward to 2021, which will, I mean, you know, I guess lead into whatever we were going to say about the future of films. Cause it's a very, it's a, that, I mean, Dune's going to come on HBO max. And unfortunately, well, we um, don't know if it will or not right now. It's the legendary, the studio behind it is suing Warner brothers Oh, they are. In an attempt to get it out in theaters, uh, you know, only in theaters. So it's very up in the air whether that will come out solely in theaters or on uh, HBO Max. But that opens up the grander question of what the future of movie going is, because I honestly 
do not know. It's very unpredictable. And as I, of um, now, as of now, January 2021, movie theaters are still closed. Movie theaters are probably going to continue to be closed because numbers keep spiraling, you know, spiking for at least another couple months or at least until the vaccine is completely rolled out. And God only knows what that's going to be. And then it opens up the bigger question of, okay, let's assume people get the vaccine. We have the virus under control. Are people really going to want to go back to theaters? Well, and that's why this will become an endless kind of debate until things really get better is it's like, at, at what point do you treat movie theaters the same way you treat essential you know, corporations, if at all, is it worth socially distancing to go to the movie theaters, which are already kind of, some of them are kind of gross to begin with. So it's kind of like, it creates this giant conversation, you know what I mean? Which is very strange. Cause like you and I have had so many conversations about, about movies being worth being seen on the big screen. Um, Steven and I did a whole episode talking about um, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which we won't dive into. We, you know, we did a whole thing about it, but one of my main points to that movie is that I wish I saw it on the big screen despite what anyone thinks of it I feel like that's a movie designed for the theater same with Dune and so it's kind of like at the end of the day can I take away what I need to take away from a movie be it on a giant IMAX screen or not absolutely and that is the Dune con- sorry that is the tenant conversation because what the movie lacks in special effects and giant spectacular sets is something that you watch at home and you go okay, like, even though I'm not, you know, I would or would not have been mesmerized in a giant theater, uh, there's still only so much story and characters to take away. And at the end of the day- Therein lies a bigger question that needs to be answered. It's just, okay, let's assume movie theaters survive the pandemic. Are we, what, what is, what movies are shown at movie theaters? Because it looks like, every small movie is going to be put on a streaming service from now on. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Tenet and Tenet, would it have been great to see on a big screen? Sure. But that's not the only movie that I want to see on the big screen. Oh, like, of course. It would have been great to have seen, you know, Palm Springs on the big screen, but I just don't see stuff like that happening again because mm-hmm. movie theaters and studios need to recoup the money that they're putting into these into these projects now has to be a recovery time and not only do they have to recoup that but you also have to look at they have to feed the other beast which is their streaming service now so you, let's talk about soul for a minute which was a big pixar movie that dropped on disney plus are people going to get just used to watching the new Pixar movie because that's their second Pixar movie, Onward being the first that they just that dropped on Disney Plus. To, yeah, that's definitely yeah. So well, at Disney also has the deviation point now, right? Because Disney com- major conglomerate companies like Disney or Apple or whoever have enough money that they can probably, you know, afford to put big movies on their streaming services. But how long is that going to last before they need actual money? Well, if you break down the numbers, the numbers that I saw said that Soul, and I'm just comparing the two movies that I saw the article about, it compared Soul to Wonder Woman 1984, and Soul brought in four times the amount of subscribers to Disney Plus as Wonder Woman did for HBO Max. Well, I think that's also the streaming service itself. 
it is also the streaming service itself. And the Mandalorian probably had a lot to do with it too. Right. But I just- It's a valid point though. But my point on the larger scale is, it to me, it looks like what we're going to end up getting is bigger movies on the big on the theatrical screens, smaller movies on streaming, if at all. Because mm-hmm. I could also see a world in which smaller movies just get the axe in general and get turned into miniseries. Well, or it depends on how they get one distributed. Of my picks, small axe changed the game entirely. It's five small anthology movies on that dropped to Amazon, on Amazon immediately. Yeah. So that could also be the future. Yeah, I definitely foresee that happening. I don't think small or independent movies will disappear. You and I have talked about that all <laughs> where it's like there there's almost too much of a supply and demand for even like what A24 has become because A24 has a limited budget, you know what I mean? And at the same time it's like they have enough of a following that people are still going to find a way to watch them regardless. So it's all about it's all about distribution at this point and that's yeah but you also look at the numbers and the number breakdown a24 can bring in a couple people but then you look at something like uh something i just watched the queen's gambit it's a seven part mini oh you can't you can't compare yeah absolutely but i think that that is the future of smaller independent movies it's mini series because people don't care anymore like it's not just about people either. It's about the studios in general. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason Warner Brothers wants to move everything to HBO Max is because AT&T owns them. Sure. And what does AT&T want more than anything? Money. You to use your data and to give them as much attention as you can. They it's want all of, eyes yeah. on the screen and they want your data. Yeah. Okay. And what brings in more time what brings in more eyeballs right now and what utilizes more time right now mini series so i just foresee that being the future of the smaller movie i definitely agree i think that people are more quick and you bring up the queen's gambit i think it's a good example because people are more quick and i mean people like the common person you ask at work or whoever and there are 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 faster to say oh i i went on netflix and i found this series rather than to be like, I was digging through these streaming services to find a small independent film that people were talking about. Yeah, you ask people, did you watch The Queen's Gambit or did you watch I'm Thinking of Ending Things? Immediately, yeah. they're going to say The Queen's Gambit. Right, of course. Because so, so there's a, a huge conversation that's been happening for years about what the mass media wants, but also now what is easiest for them to, for the mass media to get. And that's the reality is it's kind of like it's easier to produce and supply people with the giant kind of, I don't know, bigger, more popular mainstream kind of titles that they can blitz the weekend. You know what I mean? Yeah. I uh, don't know whether, you know, I, I don't necessarily you know, I like it, but I just feel like Small Axe and The Queen's Gambit are more in line with the future of smaller independent movies. Sure. And we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll save my opinions on Tenet because we did a whole podcast on it, but things like Tenet are going to be the things that come out on the big screen. If they can manage it, yeah. And that's about it. And, you know, let's look at Marvel for a minute. What Marvel has really been doing the past, I don't even know how many years now, 10, 15 years, it's really not independent movies. It's just a giant TV show 
it, that's broken down into independent. In, well, they started with Iron Man movies. in 2008. So it's been at least, you know, 12 years of just them kind of just putting it all together. You yeah. have to watch it all. But that's my point. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Marvel movies aren't really movies necessarily. Yes, they are. They have arcs within the individual uh, films, but it's a grander thing than that. It works up to Endgame, which is the series finale of For now of a phase you know it's, and what is the phase it's, really it's, never, it's a it's season never of a tv show it's never ending i mean kevin feige even said with the announcement of all those new shows that dropped he was like disney plus plays a huge part into into this he's like streaming is, is important you know whatever i don't remember how he worded it yeah. but he was basically saying like it's pivotal that you know disney plus plays in a, such a big role in the, the future of marvel because that's just where kind of where it headed i guess yeah and look at star wars i think it was like 10 tv series were announced only two movies that's it that's what people want and i'm not complaining because the mandalorian was probably the best star wars we've gotten in years unless you watch the last couple episodes of uh the clone wars but um but again the clone wars it's a tv show it tv seems to be where star wars is thriving so this is my just general point it's like i feel like even big movies are starting to slip out of the theater's grasp Mm -hmm. i just don't know how much longer that's gonna be a thing Mm -hmm. yes we live in new york so movie theaters will probably always exist for us but for someone in like kansas I don't know if you're going to have a movie theater forever. Mm-hmm. Maybe one in Kansas City, but you live in like Wyoming. I don't know if you're going to have a movie theater much longer. But it's also, do people want to go back to the movies? That's my, that's, that is truly the question. So, After yeah. a year of not going to a movie theater and focusing solely on streaming, which is where the progression was going for years anyway this just expedited it tenfold 100%. i just don't know if people want to go back no because now they're comfortable yeah you know and honestly i tend to think i'm a little more comfortable now in my home too because how many times do you go to the movies and some asshole is talking or someone is on their cell phone and you Robin's are like point. get off your phone like you're in a movie theater you're not the mm-hmm. only one here right, right right in your home you can turn you have the ability to turn everything off and focus yeah. on the screen absolutely you can pause it you know whatever yeah yeah it's true i mean of course there's perks with streaming i <laughs> i talk to enough people that uh are like oh i miss the big screen so much i'm the theater like you'll hear it here and there and i guess it's like the the small optimist of me who's watched too many movies about you know the little guy coming out on top above corporate America and, you know, proving that the, the smaller dreams can flourish. But like, I also don't think that's necessarily reality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough, man. I guess at the end of the day, a big top 10 countdown of movie uh, show is we, you know, go to this final note that what is the future of movies anyway? It's we not, don't you know. know. <laughs> we wish know. we had an answer. Knowing is half the battle, right? And knowing is half the battle. Maybe in some weird reality where time is inverted we'll be able to give you a better answer but uh, well at least this we is not tenant 
Time is not inverted today, folks. It's just uh, irrelevant. Yep. All right. So I think that's a good place to end this episode. Yeah, Steven, happy end of 2020. We uh, did it. We did it. Jeez. <laughs> this was a, a pretty good year, like we said. Let's not focus on, end on the negative. Let's end on the happy. We gave you 10, well, more than that. We gave you like, I don't even know how many great movies to just watch. There's a lot. There's a lot and, out there. And you can uh, you know, find more of our picks and more of our uh, you know, and recommendations. And the great thing is, other than Nomadland and Minari, I'm pretty sure everything that we have given you is easily accessible to watch right now right so get good. on it people get on it and until then i guess you can uh you know find us and all of our recommendations over on our handles if you want to yep. tell the good people as where always you can, find you can follow me at mr Filmart on instagram and letterbox you can follow the podcast at whose filmography on instagram and josh where can the people find you you can find me on letterbox under beach uh, B-E-E-S-H. You can also, uh, you know, just follow podcast as, uh, as well on Instagram and wherever you can find us. And it's a uh, uh, great time. Next week, we will be tackling Christopher Nolan's Tenant. And then we will be doing what we promised at the end of our Disney rankings, which is going into Bong Joon-ho. Yes. So, Bong Joon-ho! Oh, Ho. yeah. It's going to be a great year. It's going to be, a, here's to hoping 2021 is better than 2020. <laughs> oh, it's got to be way. better. Oh, come on. All right, take it easy, folks. All right, we'll see you next time.